Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. France's agonies did not end with a great piece of Bretigny. Although open hostilities between the two great kingdoms largely ceased, the Breton War of Succession and the Civil War against the Navarrese continued. Even worse, the Routiers, the freebooting mercenary soldiers, now became a truly terrifying force of disorder and violence. The truce between England and France after the Battle of Poitiers, followed by the Bretigny Treaty, had demobilized thousands of hardened English, Gascon, French, and Breton veterans. War was all they knew, and they refused to return to civilian lives of boredom and poverty. They banded together into so-called free companies, sometimes consisting of thousands of men, and led by such colorful figures as Sir Robert Knowles, an English soldier who rose from common obscurity to the nobility, and Arnaud de Servol, known as the Archpriest, a defrocked French clergyman. The free companies wandered all over France, seeking adventure, meeting out violence, and pillaging for profit. Communities paid enormous ransoms to buy them off. In March 1359, Auxerre in Burgundy handed over 40,000 gold coins to avoid plunder by the free company of Sir Robert Knowles. In the words of Christopher Allman, the Kingdom of France was becoming the playground of Europe's footloose soldiers. For many French civilians, the war seemed not to have ended at all. But the Routier companies were a threat even to the French monarchy. On April 6, 1362, the company of the Tardvenu defeated the French royal army at Brinay in the Rhone Valley. The Routier even exported their violence beyond France. In 1361, Sir John Hawkwood, the son of an Essex tanner, led the White Company into Italy. Thanks to his mastery of the English tactical system of dismounted men-at-arms and long bowmen, Hawkwood became one of the most feared mercenary captains, or condottieri, in Italy. He ended his days as the captain-general of Florence. His funerary monument, painted by Uccello, graces Florence's Duomo. Yet, amidst all this gloom, there were glimmers of French revival. In order to pay his enormous ransom, King John II had secured a suite of taxes, notably sales dues on a range of basic commodities and a tax on salt. Moreover, unlike in England, where the kings had been forced to acknowledge Parliament's power of the purse, the French kings continued to impose and collect these taxes without the consent of their subjects. A secure revenue base to support the French war effort had been created. Just as important were changes in both political and military leadership. In 1364, King John II died. Although amiable, chivalrous, and brave, he had fought on foot with a battle axe at Poitiers until forced to surrender, John had proved unable to master the manifold political and military crises he faced. His successor, Charles V, would become one of the greatest of all French medieval kings, earning the epithet Le Sage, or the Wise. The outstanding French soldier of the Hundred Years' War also now appeared. Bertrand du Guesclin was a Breton knight who began his career as a routier captain before entering the service of the French crown. 
As a result of his bravery and tactical acumen, he rose to become Charles V's chief commander. On May 16, 1364, Duguesclin and the royal army engaged the Navarrese forces of Charles the Bad at Coquerel, east of Paris. The Navarrese included a strong contingent of English free companies, and their army was commanded by Jean de Grilly, capital de Bouche, the same Gascon nobleman whom we last saw leading the decisive charge at Poitiers. De Grilly sought to fight in the English defensive style. Dugaclin employed a feigned retreat to lure the Navarrese and English out of their defensive positions, then cut them to pieces with a sudden flank attack. Coquerel was a significant victory for the French monarchy. Charles the Bad reconciled with the king. By the Treaty of Pamplona, he agreed to lay down his arms in exchange for the preservation of his main Norman lands. Charles proved incorrigible and soon resumed plotting and intriguing, but he never again posed a serious military threat. Bertrand du Gaclin was a superb general, but he must also be one of the most captured generals in military history. In his next battle, at Ore, on September 29, 1364, Duguesclin led the troops of Charles of Blois, the French claimant to the Duchy of Brittany, against the army of the English-backed Montfort claimant. The forces of Blois were badly defeated. Charles himself was killed, and Duguesclin was taken prisoner. Ore compelled Charles the Wise to seek a settlement in Brittany. He recognized the Montfort claimant as Duke John IV and granted him so much autonomy that Brittany became effectively independent from the Kingdom of France. In particular, in particular, the English were permitted to keep the port of Brest and several other key strongholds in the duchy. These terms were a steep price to pay for the French king, but they ended the Breton War of Succession. At last, free of civil wars, Charles the Wise was then handed an opportunity to deal with the Routier. In Castile, the most powerful of the five kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula, a vicious struggle for power was unfolding. The brutal behavior of King Peter, his sobriquet, even among many of his own subjects, was the cruel, had alienated many Castilian nobles and commoners. The disaffected had rallied around Peter's illegitimate half-brother, Count Henry of Trastamara appealed for help to the King of France. Charles V agreed. He calculated that a friendly Castile would make a valuable ally. This issue was especially pressing because King Peter had been drawing closer to the English, and in particular to the Black Prince. More importantly, Charles saw a chance to rid France of the Routiers by hiring them, then dispatching them over the Pyrenees to fight in Spain. He was joined by the Pope, whose seat at Avignon had frequently been menaced by the free companies. In January 1366, 10,000 routiers invaded Castile. To lead the army, Charles the Wise had ransomed Bertrand du Gaclin from English captivity. But so many of the free companies were English and Gascon that du Gaclin had to share command with an English routier captain, Sir Hugh Calvilly. Ironically, Calvary had played a major role at Ore, the battle in which Duguesclin had been captured. The Routier stormed through Castile, overrunning the kingdom in a matter of weeks. The Castilians deserted Peter the Cruel. Unable to mount effective resistance, Peter fled Spain. Henry of Trastamara replaced him as King of Castile. Peter the Cruel took refuge in Aquitaine. 
the Black Prince had been ruling the duchy as his own domain since 1362. He and his closest advisors regarded developments in Spain with dismay. A Castile allied with France would represent a serious threat on the southern frontier of Aquitaine. Moreover, the Castilian galley fleet was the finest in Europe and could alter the balance of power in the Atlantic. There was one final consideration. The prince had now spent most of a decade doing the dull work of governing. He was itching to get back to the battlefield. He therefore decided to invade Castile and restore King Peter to his throne. In February 1367, the Black Prince and an army of English and Gascon veterans crossed the Pyrenees into Castile. His army was swelled by the free companies of Hugh Calvary, who immediately deserted Henry of Trastamara. The Castilians, though, still had Bertrand du Guesclin and his strong French and Breton contingent. Du Guesclin urged Henry of Trastamara to avoid a pitched battle with the Black Prince and instead harry the English army until lack of supplies forced it to withdraw. Henry at first took this advice, but eventually feared that his inaction would be interpreted as cowardice and provoke many Castilians to defect to Peter the Cruel. He decided to give battle. The two armies met near the town of Nahara on April the 3rd, 1367. The sources are unclear and imprecise about numbers. Modern estimates give each side between 6,000 and 8,000 men. The Black Prince's army was drawn up in four divisions, a vanguard, left wing, right wing, and a reserve under the prince himself. Each division was deployed in the now standard English fashion, dismounted men-at-arms flanked by archers. The Castilian army was also in four divisions. Bertrand du Guesclin and his dismounted French men-at-arms were the vanguard. The Castilian left and right wings consisted mainly of jinetes, the javelin-armed light cavalry that were mainstays of Iberian warfare. Perhaps think of them as medieval versions of Hannibal's Numidians. The Castilian Reserve was commanded by King Henry and comprised mounted Castilian men-at-arms backed up by large numbers of infantry levies. Nahara was the rare battle where the English took the offensive. The battle began with a clash of the vanguards. Soon the experienced French and English men-at-arms were locked in ferocious hand-to-hand combat. The Castilian Hinetes tried to attack the English vanguard's longbowmen but the archers shot so effectively against the lightly armored horsemen that they were driven from the field. The English wing divisions then attacked Du Guesclin's troops. The French were overwhelmed and Du Guesclin himself was captured. The English and Gascon then turned on the enemy reserve division. King Henry personally led a charge of his mounted men-at-arms. The longbowmen shot it to pieces. The Black Prince then launched an all-out assault and the last Castilian division disintegrated. In the chaotic rout, King Henry managed to escape. Nahara was the crowning achievement of the Black Prince's brilliant military career. It demonstrated that the English tactical system was now so formidable that it could be effectively employed in the attack. But the fruits of victory soon turned bitter. Once restored to his throne, Peter the Cruel turned on his allies. As the price of the Black Prince's intervention, he had promised to pay the English and Gascon troops. Following a summer of increasingly angry bickering, the Black Prince realized that Peter was reneging on his promise. The Prince then took his army back over the Pyrenees to Aquitaine, 
In the meantime, Charles the Wise had been helping Henry of Trastamara rebuild his army. In the autumn of 1367, Henry returned to Castile. Without the help of the Black Prince's veterans and their longbows, Peter the Cruel was soon in serious difficulties. His fate was sealed when King Charles of France ransomed Bertrand du Guesclin and sent him back to Spain. On March 14, 1369, du Guesclin ambushed Peter's army and destroyed it at the Battle of Montiel. Peter himself was captured, then personally stabbed to death by Henry of Trastamara. Once back on his throne, King Henry never forgot who put him there. Castile would be France's faithful ally until the late 15th century. But the Castilian campaign and Nahara had even more significant consequences for the Hundred Years' War. In fact, they would lead to a major turning point. The Black Prince's sojourn in the hot and insalubrious climate of Spain wrecked his health. He would never again lead an army in battle. Even more seriously, because of Peter the Cruel's refusal to pay his troops, he had massive debts to his retainers and to several routier captains. In desperate need for hard cash, the prince resorted to imposing a new tax on his Gascon subjects. This new tax proved hugely unpopular in Aquitaine. The tax was particularly hated by the powerful noble houses of Armagnac and Albre. In 1362, the Armagnacs and Albres had been badly defeated by their arch-enemy, the House of Bois, at the Battle of Launac. The Armagnacs and Albres had paid enormous ransoms for their captured leaders. Already in financial difficulties and now faced by the Black Prince's new tax, the two houses appealed for relief to their liege sovereign, King Edward III. The English king turned them down. The Armagnacs and Albres then appealed to King Charles V of France. Charles the Wise realized that accepting the appeal of the nobles of Aquitaine would be a casus belli, a cause for war with England. He carefully marshaled his forces and gathered his resources. To buy himself and his kingdom more time to prepare, he asked Europe's leading legal scholars if he had the right to hear the nobles' appeal. In December 1368, they confirmed that he did. In retaliation, Edward III resumed using the title King of France. In November 1369, Charles declared he was confiscating Aquitaine. The Hundred Years' War resumed. The nature and course of the conflict during the 1370s was to be very different from the first decade of the Hundred Years' War, and its results more dramatic. Unlike during the age of Crecy and Poitiers, the French were united under Charles the Wise. Moreover, a wave of reforms had transformed the French military machine. What Philippe Contamine calls the Army of the Reconquest was far better organized, better paid, more disciplined, and more effective than the hosts of King Philip VI and John II. Charles the Wise and his commanders used the robust and more regular revenues from improved taxation to create and maintain permanent companies of men-at-arms and crossbowmen. This standing army was small, 2,400 men-at-arms, 600 mounted crossbowmen, and 400 crossbowmen on foot. However, it formed an elite corps that was then built out by contingents supplied by the French nobility and the towns. Charles the Wise placed the new model French army under the command of Bertrand du Guesclin, 
whom he appointed Constable of France in 1370. The constable then formulated and put into action a new strategy. He avoided confronting English armies in pitched battle. Instead, he descended on the overextended frontiers of the enlarged English possessions in France with small but fast-moving forces. The French relied on raids, sieges, and the encouragement of defections among the Gascon nobility to reconquer territory. The English responded to the French offensives by resorting to their tried-and-true technique of the chevauchée. Throughout the 1370s, the English launched regular large-scale raids from Calais that crossed northern France and ended in either Brittany or Gascony. The English forces involved were considerable. Some 30,000 troops were raised for expeditionary armies between 1369 and 1380. The English armies were well-disciplined, well-organized, well-paid, and composed of doughty veterans. But they achieved little against the French. Under Du Guesclin, the French strenuously avoided battle, even in the face of the worst English provocations. Moreover, Du Guesclin did his best to minimize the devastation caused by chevauchées by surrounding the marauding English armies with mobile French forces that countered the enemy raiding parties. Du Guesclin's conduct of this phase of the war was highly reminiscent of, and could even have been inspired by, the strategy of the Roman consul Fabius Maximus in the face of Hannibal's invincible Carthaginian army. The English war effort was further hampered by the disappearance of the generation of talented commanders of the glorious first phase of the Hundred Years' War. The Black Prince, his health ruined, withdrew from Aquitaine in 1371. He died five years later. King Edward III himself was in his dotage. He followed his oldest son to the grave in 1377. After 1380, the English ceased sending large-scale expeditionary armies to France. The financial cost was simply too high for the meager results achieved. By then, the French campaigns had reduced the English possessions to the Calais Pale and a fragment of Aquitaine largely amounting to a coastal strip stretching from Bordeaux to Bayonne. Yet the French were now unable to fight to final victory. Their successful war effort had extracted an enormous financial and social toll. Furthermore, the architects of the Reconquest, Bertrand du Guesclin and Charles the Wise, both died in 1380 the two exhausted kingdoms began negotiating for peace. In 1396, they agreed to a 28-year truce. The truce left unresolved the fundamental issues of English-held lands in France and the Plantagenet claim to the French throne. Nevertheless, it could have become a permanent peace if two developments had not intervened. First, a renewal of bitter French internal divisions which escalated to full-blown civil war. Second, the ascension to the throne of England's last and greatest warrior king, Henry V. 